0: It is today in Ohio, the renamed podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, formerly called This Week in the CLE. Our news podcast discussion begins today under a new brand. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla and Laura, I know you enjoyed the spectacular Halloween weather to go out with your children. And Laura, you looked really good in the... In the- League of their own uniforms with your daughter.
1: Yeah, we were kit and dotty and we got a lot of there's no crying in baseball. So, so. Cute. dirt in the <laughs> skirt. It was it was super fun. <laughs>
2: And
0: Layla, you now finished the generational hand-me-down of the ladybug costume. (laughs) The
2: ladybug costume. I don't know if you saw that picture I posted of of my toddler wearing it, but she looks like she's over Halloween before it even started. It
0: was a big weekend in Cleveland. We had a spectacular rock hall induction. We had a really sad Browns game where they looked as mediocre as they always do. And a big Halloween. Everybody had predicted yesterday's weather would be terrible and it turned out to be beautiful. Let's get Get to the news. What did we learn last week as we tried to nail down the positions of the candidates running for school board across Northeast Ohio? when we are seeing more candidates than we have in decades. Layla Tassi, this was a reader service. People clamored for as much information as they could get, so they didn't vote for the people they didn't want to be in. Largely, most of the people don't want the CRT, anti-masker kind of crazies in their school board. They want education-focused people. So how did we do?
2: well to be honest the thing that we learned is that many of the school board candidates who are running on a platform that is as you described anti-critical race theory anti-comprehensive sex education and anti-social emotional learning don't necessarily want you to know any of that about them. <laughs> They're so invasive. They're trying invasive. to sneak on? Is that That's what it exactly, is? That's exactly it. It's almost like they want you to elect them on accident. And so after reporter Hannah Drown had written a story nailing down where candidates stand on these issues in the Cuyahoga County races, we started hearing from readers in the other counties in our coverage zone asking for the same kind of service. So last week, we assigned four reporters to fan out and and find out more about these candidates in Lorain County, Summit, Lake, and Medina. And we focus on districts with 3,000 or more students in them. And the reporters found it very challenging, to say the least. Many of them were, were not overt. Many of these candidates weren't overt about their positions on their campaign websites and on Facebook pages. Even when our reporters called them, it was hard to nail down their positions. Courtney Stolfi told me that she had called a couple of candidates who actually said, it's too close to the election for me to be having this conversation with you. <laughs> so it was like, I'm sorry, too close to the election to be explaining why you're running for school board. That's <laughs> insane. So uh, our reporters spent hours watching videos of the League of of Women Voters candidate forums that were hosted in each of these communities, and and even then had a hard time pinpointing where some of the candidates were coming from. And so they were making calls. I mean, they used they drew in resources from everywhere to try to to nail this. Uh, so, you know, we took an approach where whatever we did find on them, we put in the story along with our source. And we we really hope that voters who are unclear on these candidates find find these roundups to be useful.
0: And we did hear from some candidates that did not like being put into boxes because I think for the very reason they're trying to sneak in. I think voters are more savvy than that. I think they appreciate the work that was put into this, we'll have to see how things go tomorrow. It is election day tomorrow.
2: That's right. Yep. Well, I, I'm so excited <laughs> for so many different reasons. Election night is going to be an exciting uh, event.
0: And we'll actually be in the newsroom together, which we That's don't right. do very often anymore because of yeah. the coronavirus. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Where is much of the money fueling Northeast Ohio school board races coming from? Lisa Garvin, our reporter, Laura Hancock, took a look at the funding that's flying into some of these races. There's more money going into school boards than we've seen in some time. Where is it coming from?
3: It's coming from dark money areas and and PACs. There have been PACs formed nationally and locally. We actually have two PACs that were formed right here in Northeast Ohio. One of them is called Safe Chagrin Schools. They got $33,000 to support three candidates, one of whom is a write-in candidate. These are candidates who are against mask mandates and what they call a divisive agenda, which I think is a euphemism for, you know, diversion and diversity and inclusion. Uh, the donors to Save Chagrin Clu- uh, schools include Senate uh, candidate Mike Gibbons. He gave 1000 bucks, And then Tim and, higher, Tim and Heather Ryan. They are not related to the Tim Ryan who's running for U.S. Senate. They gave the bulk of the money. They gave $20,000 to sh- Save Chagrin schools. There's also what's called a combined campaign committee for three candidates running in Beechwood. Um, it's called the Weiss-Caputo Charms Mason for Beechwood Committee. Uh, these are the three candidates who are running and endorsed by Ohio Value Voters, which is the group that's endorsing people who are against mask and vaccine mandates and so forth. Um, that one uh Got $250 from Bruce Mandel, who is Josh Mandel's father. And again, I said they got the endorsement from Ohio Value Voters. This is disturbing. We never see this kind of money coming into school board races. It's, it, it, obviously, it, this is going to be a very polarized election for school boards locally and nationally.
0: Yeah, it turns out it's a big national movement. When we all started hearing about critical race theory some months ago, which nobody had ever heard of before, it was this unified effort across the country. Some national journalists showed that this was really part of a conspiracy to to polarize people on school boards. And then all sorts of these folks started running. And the big fiction is that it's not taught in local schools, even though they're trying to convince people it is. Gibbons sent us an op-ed that we rejected because it's an absolute falsehood Warning people in the, the scariest Halloween kind of way. You, this is being taught to your children in the schools and it's trying to co-op your children. And it's completely not true. It's just that it is not taught in local schools. It never was. And yet the the, the movement is afoot. It'll be interesting to see whether the money, whether the messaging wins people over, largely Uh, I think the people we've heard from are dead set on not allowing these people to take over their school boards. They want their school districts run by people who care about education, not phony political dogma. But it's staggering. Twenty thousand dollars. From Chagrin more, Falls School Board race.
3: And and uh, from there was one a, person. There was an interesting quote from Nancy Binzel Brown. She is the uh in the Stowe Monroe Falls School District. She said these candidates may be surprised at what they really talk about during school board meetings. It's really not about vaccine mandates or critical race theory or whatever they want to call it, they'll be surprised at what the real issues are. Spending voter approved bond money, replacing and renovating school buildings. I mean, that's that's really the nuts and bolts of this. So some of these candidates getting in thinking they're going to light a fire might be a little bit surprised.
0: Yeah, anybody, any reporter that started out covering school board meetings and city hall meetings and things knows it it was often hard to come up with a story interesting out of school boards. My best one is when I was a brand new reporter in New Jersey, the school district had to approve the using of their high school for the movie Eddie and the Cruisers, which gave me something to write about. And today (laughs) would be viral. Anyway, we'll have to see how it goes. Tomorrow is election day. Make sure you vote. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Chief politics writer Seth Richardson says the Cleveland mayor's race after the primary has been lower key than before the primary, that changed a bit Saturday. Laura Johnston, how so?
1: Well, Kevin Kelly stood by while one of his biggest supporters said the campaign was going to kick the expletive out of Justin Bibb. And this was from Dave Wondolowski, one of two Democrats who serves on the four-member Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, which just makes it more interesting, that oversees, obviously, the election administration in the county. He's a big union leader and a vice president at the Port of Cleveland. And uh, this was at a rally for Kelly, where he stood right by it, which is um, a little bit shocking.
0: Well, what was surprising about that, because some people are interpreting as a threat, he's Juan Wondolowski, who is not just the head of the, the, the union group. He's also the vice chair of the port board, and he has a key position in the Greater Cleveland Partnership. And he's on the board of elections. Right. One of the right. four people on the board of elections. He said, when we win, we're going to kick the S out of Justin Bibb and, for good measure, the media. Uh, he did, the, the Nick Castell of WCPN IdeaStream was there, and he looked at him and says, yes, I'm talking about you, Nick, which is kind of a threat. So some people are saying that he's saying after Kelly wins, which many people doubt will happen, they're going to kick the S out of Justin Bibb and the media, which is threatening violence. Or people are interpreting it by winning, they are kicking the S. Either way, Kevin Kelly did nothing to stop that. And what strikes me about that, can you imagine ever in the last 16 years, Frank Jackson being on the stage with a campaign supporter saying something like that and him not stopping it? Can you, for that matter, imagine Justin Bibb being on a stage while somebody says something like that? No.
1: I mean, it sounds like it's it's very thuggish and it is... It, I don't know inciting violence because the violence didn't happen right away, but it's threatening.
0: Well, they should have done it right on Lake Erie because it felt like on the waterfront, right? Union thuggery. I mean, it's like the worst image you can have as the leader of a union group to be making that kind of physical threat. And look, people don't like profanity in these situations. This was a stunner. I, it just I don't know if it's a sign of desperation or what? But it was was not appropriate. So now people are talking about, should there be calls for the ouster of Wondolowski from all these boards he serves on? Is this really who Cleveland wants representing them on the port and on the elections board? Here's an elections official saying he's going to kick the ass out of a candidate. It was a stunning moment. We don't usually Put big breaking news into news stories on the weekend before the election, but we ended up updating Seth Richardson's story with that because it was such a shock. I don't remember anything like it. Does anybody else remember anything like that in a local race?
2: No, Not, no, no. I, I don't. Not even no, in Texas and, politics. And I,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Until then, Seth had written that basically they had refrained from direct attacks on each other, both dib and Kelly, and they were using kind of flyers to to kind of fight each other back and, and focusing on issue 24, you know, the call for police reform, but they hadn't, gone at each other's throats this way. And, and, you know, you could say, well, Kelly didn't do it. But Kelly stood right next to this guy and didn't say anything. I mean, well, the, picture, the pictures show him right there.
0: And the reason that's significant is his whole campaign has been, I'm the seasoned politician. I'm ready on day one. And he let that happen, which makes you wonder, what kind of leader would he be? If he cannot rein in somebody who is clearly saying something completely inappropriate in a rally, what does it mean he would do as mayor? Right. Is Uh, he going to
1: stand up for what he believes or, you know, that's his whole point is that he has the experience, but that didn't show leadership.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a stunning moment. And we, you know, we, we actually gave Seth the day off because he's been working so hard and he was having a Halloween party. And the word was it would be a very quiet end to the campaign. So <laughs> we relied on Nick Castell to cover it. for. And uh, and I'm glad he did because it, it was an eye opener.
1: Yeah. And, and Nick had a bunch of tweets. And I mean, it sounded like Wondolowski was focusing on him. I mean, he actually said it. I mean, in the quote, I'm talking to you, Nick. So Nick, Nick took one for the media team.
0: A whole lot of people were talking about this weekend because they were so stunned at the inappropriateness of it. It'll be interesting to see if Wanda remains. He's a Frank Jackson appointee to some of these boards. Is Do you really think Frank Jackson's going to stand by somebody who says something like that? It is so anti-Jackson. I mean, the whole reason Frank Jackson ran for city council president back 20 years ago is he was put off by the antics of Mike Polencic and the lack of decorum. Well, Mike Polensik never did anything like this, so we'll have to see what the reaction is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. As the 16-year administration of Frank Jackson nears its end, what reminder did we get last week of one of the administration's most abysmal failures, the handling of public records? Leila Tassi even by city hall public record standards, this one is a jaw
2: dropper. <laughs> yeah, when when uh, when reporter Bob Higgs called to tell me about this last week, he started out by saying, "You're gonna love this," <laughs> and he was totally <laughs> right. Seemingly out of nowhere bob received an email alerting him that the city had provided records responsive to a request he had made and he had no idea what request this pertained to so when he went to look he discovered the city had provided two blank forms that the city health department used for contact tracing during the pandemic and they were in response to his request for the list of questions that contact tracers ask infected people he had made that request almost exactly a year ago. <laughs> it's and of course, you know, now what relevance does that document have? Is any health department even bothering with contact tracing anymore? So, you know, a Jackson spokeswoman said the delay was because of an oversight that occurred as the health department was undergoing reorganization. But it gave us the perfect opportunity to take one last swing at Frank Jackson for his abysmal record on responding to requests you know bob bob wrote a story reminding readers of some of the more drawn out response times and all the headaches we and and other citizens have endured trying to shake loose records in a timely fashion even even you know we've regularly turned to the ohio court of claims to make it happen so it was uh it's always fun to well <laughs> to and
0: look, beat up it, on them for that <laughs> but, but there also is here a public policy problem because we sought those records back then. We wondered, could you use contact tracing to figure out how this thing is spreading? If they're going out and talking to everybody that has it in the early days when this was still rare, you could ask where have they have been, where have they were, where, you know, did they go to the gym? Did they go to church? have They've been in restaurants to try and figure out what the highest probability places are for it to be spreading. So so we asked the state and got the runaround with the state, but they finally said, yeah, we don't ask that question, which mine was mind boggling. And we asked the city because we wanted to find out maybe the city has data that could give people a clear idea. Churches are a place where it's spreading, but restaurants, not so much or whatever. So it was important in real time. It was information at the beginning of the pandemic that might have prevented people from getting sick. And They didn't provide it for a year when there's absolutely no use to it. That's now.
2: right. I mean, so another example related to the pandemic, In, in April of 2020, we had requested demographic data about people who had contracted COVID in Cleveland, including, you know, information such as age and race and location. And five months later, the city rejected that request and said it was overly broad. And then the city started posting a lot of that data on the health department's website. So they became more transparent about it eventually. But five months to say no (laughs) to a records request. Oh my gosh. And that's the, you know, like you said, real time, this stuff matters. And that's the point. That's the case with every public records request. God, I, that was the worst part about covering Cleveland city hall when I was a reporter, because I mean, you just hit that wall or you, you find, you find a nugget. you, You can't wait to dig into something and you realize what you have to request. And you think through all the steps and how long it's going to take to get And you just feel like a deflated balloon.
0: (laughs) And really, this is specific to the Frank Jackson administration. I mean, people talk about how Mike White was at war at the end with the media, but he maintained a, a rigor to his records policies. They didn't give it to you the next day, but he was serious about turning over public records. It's Frank Jackson that Really, it's one of the huge failings. There's a lot that he's done that in 16 years has been positive, but this has been the worst. Whoever the next mayor is, they've got to do better because it can't continue like this. You're doing a disservice to the public. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and don't change your podcast. This is the formerly known This Week in the CLE. Who did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine appoint to fill the positions of the school board members who resigned in the aftermath of their support of a resolution opposing racism? And who are they strongly connected with in the DeWine administration? Lisa Garvin?
3: They are very strongly connected, both of these guys, to uh, Lieutenant Governor John Husted. One of the appointees, Brandon Kern, he's from Amanda in Fairfield County. He's a senior director of state and national policy for the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation. He, uh, gave, he was a legislative assistant for Housted back in 2009 to 2011. Um, he's also a member of the Amanda Clear Creek school board there where he is. The second one, Richard, Richard Cherneski of Waynesville, which is in Warren County. He, gave $10,000 to Houston's 2016 campaign when he ran for lieutenant governor. He was secretary of state at the time. He also gave another 10000 in two different payments to a Republican candidate fund that benefited Houston. He's a corporate attorney at Dinsmore and Shoal of Cincinnati. So yeah, both of them have very strong ties to Houston. I don't know what that means or signifies, but there it is.
0: Yeah, that's what I was wondering. What, what does it mean? I mean, is is this to fortify Houston so that in four more years, if he runs for governor, he's got more support? I, 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 it throws me. I mean, or is it trying to tie Houston to all of the, the ugliness that's going on at the school board so that Mike DeWine can <laughs> deflect it because he's taken a bit of a hit that he asked the president to resign because she stood behind her resolution opposing racism?
3: And the Senate on Wednesday, last Wednesday, Wednesday, they confirmed three appointments to the board, all of whom voted to rescind Resolution 20. So it seems like the die is kind of set here or is about to be set. And Ohio Education Association Union President Scott DeMoro said, this really sends a signal that the State Board of Education isn't committed to equity and the realities of, of what equity and diverse, diversity means. So yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see how, we're these two men fall. We really don't know where they fall on resolution 20 or diversity inclusion masks, vaccine mandates or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see how they fall. But I, I don't think we'll be surprised, but we'll wait and see.
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty good bet where they'll fall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Saturday night's Rock Hall induction ceremony in Cleveland live up to all the advanced billing? Laura Johnston, it might be the, the best induction ceremony ever in Cleveland, although there was a piece of bad news that came out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This deserved all the hype. And I wanna preface this that I read our outstanding coverage from our entertainment team, including Troy Smith and Joey Marone. I was not lucky enough to be at the event, but I can't watch it. wait to watch it on hbo because there were a lot of stars that showed up i mean talking huge names with a guest list boasting some of the biggest stars in music history and and like a power packed four hours which is kind of jaw-dropping but the goal of this being live on tv like the grammys seems in in reach when you have performances like this taylor swift kicked it off she performed carol king's will you still love me tomorrow and apparently drew massive screams from the crowd a standing ovation that brought King to tears. LL Cool J had one of the biggest performances of the night. He had surprise guests Eminem and Jennifer Lopez, Jennifer Hudson, Christina Aguilera, Brenny Carlisle. I mean, obviously the Beatles. It was just like person after person, you know, just coming coming out
0: but we had been talking recently in cleveland that maybe this should be an annual event in cleveland yeah. instead of being in new york every other year that cleveland treats it so big it's like an oscar ceremony whereas when it's in new york or in the old days when it was in la it's just another gala in cities filled with galas but the head of the rockfall foundation that's the one that's based in new york dashed the hopes of anybody that was hoping to see this be an annual event in cleveland
1: Right, exactly. It, they're saying that it'll likely rotate between New York, Cleveland and L- L.A. And we don't know if that means once every three years or if Cleveland would be every other year between L.A. and New York. But it is a little bit disappointing when you think this is means so much to the city. And we're so excited about it. And look at who they drew. I mean, they did a great job and it'd be nice to have it here every year.
0: Well, and the cool thing about it being in Cleveland is you can go into the museum and see the exhibit mean, right. part of this is the opening of the new exhibit and all the stuff that goes with these inductees. If it's in New York, you can't. And if it's in L.A., you can't. It's so much better as a complete event here Uh, It was just it was a disappointment to hear them say that the the folks in New York, though, they they they've been kind of weird since the beginning. The people in Cleveland are the ones that care about Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio is a public art project intended to prick our collective consciences looking likely for a permanent installation in Cleveland. And what is the Homeless Jesus? Leila Tassi, I believe you wrote a column about the Homeless Jesus not more than a year ago.
2: I did because it visited my town, Bay Village. Uh, So this past week, the Cleveland Landmarks Commission voted unanimously to approve the installation of four bronze statues depicting a suffering Jesus. This, these were created by sculptor Timothy Schmaltz of Kitchener, Ontario, and he bases them on verses from from Matthew 25. The commission ha- had jurisdiction because the four sites that they chose for this fell within various Cleveland historic districts. And the statues were acquired by Community West Foundation, and, and they expect to install them either later this year or early spring. These statues are very realistic representations of a cloaked person afflicted by homelessness and suffering. And the one they call Homeless Jesus, which is, it it depicts a man bundled in a blanket and sleeping on a park bench, was, as I said, temporarily installed last year in Bay Village. And it stirred controversy because a man who was picking up his daughter from a nearby preschool spotted this and called the police on the guy. (laughs) And that was exactly the point of the statue, was to provoke a community conversation about both poverty and privilege. And I mean, the story just went viral. Even Saturday Night Live lampooned the situation. And um, yeah, so I, I wrote a column about it because I, I felt like, you know, they they chose the perfect location for this Bay Village. It's It's the town where, you know, there's even a Uh, You know, between the east side and west side of the town, they find ways to further divide into, uh, you know, social strata. So um, to to have this uh, erupt from our town, I think, was very appropriate for for the the point and mission of this particular set of statues. Um, It'll be very cool to have more of them around.
0: They'll be all over the place, though, right? This isn't going to be one place where you'd see them all. They'll be they'll be spread around in different sites?
2: Oh, yes, they'll be in Cleveland, though. Um, Homeless Jesus, the one that I was just referring to, will be at the St. Malachi Parish. Uh, one was called When I Was a Stranger. It will be at the Refugee Response Headquarters at the Urban Community School Campus. One called When I Was Sick will be at uh, Cleveland Clinic Lutheran Hospital and another called When I Was Naked will be at Malachi House. So all Cleveland locations. um, But, uh, you know, it would be nice to see uh, one rotate into the suburbs like like this one. But um, yeah, we'll see. Maybe there is one that will be uh, loaned out to different sites.
0: (laughs) Okay, you are listening to Today in Ohio. After refusing to use an informal process to review challenges to the recent reappraisals of home values in Cuyahoga County, breaking with recent years of tradition, what is Cuyahoga County suddenly thinking it might need to do to handle the former challenges that will come in in large numbers? Lisa Garvin.
3: It looks like they're going to be doubling the number of boards of revision that will be hearing these formal challenges they last they claimed that the pandemic last year didn't give them enough time for the informal process that they've used for years so they had to move to formal hearings, which you have to appear before the board and state your case. So they're going to add two, maybe three more boards of revision. One of them would uh, ostensibly start on April 1st of 2022. And the second one would start on July 1st. If they get more than 25,000, you know, complaints, then they would add like a third board. So in a typical year, they get about 4,000 people trying to, you know, challenge their appraisals. Uh, What's his name ron o'leary he's he's the head of the 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 board of revision. He's expecting that to quadruple and maybe even quintuple. He's expecting twenty to twenty five thousand formal challenges this year, so they they really need to you know have these extra boards of revisions to hear them all it'll cost about a million dollars to put two boards into place temporary boards and that money comes from the real estate assessment fund not the county's general fund and property value the property owners who are want to contest the value of their home have from january 1st to march 31st to state their case
0: Okay, it's too bad they didn't allow the informal process that goes so much easier on people, and now it's going to cost us a lot of money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The people behind three lawsuits challenging the gerrymandered legislative districts in Ohio seem to think they have a treasure trove of evidence in the depositions and other documents they obtained from the Republicans who approved those maps. What are the people who filed
1: suit saying now, Laura Johnston? Well, they're focusing on the secrecy of the process that was so secret, even commission members didn't know what was going on. There's this great anecdote that Andrew Tobias found reading thousands and thousands of pages where... Frank LaRose, the secretary of state, only found out where they were meeting because he was going for a jog and he saw like a bunch of people coming out of a building, which it's like Frank LaRose is one of seven people on this commission that voters approved to redo the redistricting process because it was so corrupt the last time. And look what we've got again. But these filings that came late Friday, the second week in a row, you have had a late Friday dump of filings. They narrow down the original thousands of pages and show what they're focusing on and basically these democratic aligned and voter rights groups are arguing that the maps violate the anti-gerrymandering rules from the constitution and they also are talking about how they want to fight these lawsuits like who's going to represent them if they'll all have their own chance in court or they need to like stick with one of the groups and their their lawyers.
0: You know that anecdote about him out for a run that came from Faber, the auditor. He's the one that provided that information, which means that LaRose called Faber and said, "Hey, they're over there meeting." And and here's what's wrong with that: that they, they can sit back and say, "Hey, we were on the outside; those guys ran away." But they actually were a majority. If you add Dewine, mm-hmm. th- they had three Republicans to Cup and and Huffman having two they could have done something on their own they could have said i don't know what those guys are doing we're going to do this right let's be transparent let's sit down let's get some people drawing maps and instead they said hey they did it without us they closed us out we didn't even know where they were meeting well you're a commission member you could have gotten the other five people together and said the hell with those guys let's do it it's such a cop out to sit back and say yeah cup and huffman they went and did everything in secret and they never told us where they were it's fascinating what's coming out of this nobody involved in this process did what the voters expected them to do when they changed the Constitution. And I hope the Supreme Court takes that into account.
1: Well, absolutely, it just feels so passive. Like now they're complaining they didn't have a chance and they have these text messages where they called the legal rationale Asinine, but at this, like you could have done something all along, or you could have done something in the congressional redistricting, which is a separate process for the the different districts of that. And it's still you did nothing. It's just you just sat back and let the legislative leaders draw these Republican-dominated districts because it's good for your party. And now you're saying, "Don't blame me. I had nothing to do with it."
0: They abdicated all responsibility. We're coming up in the December hearing before the Supreme Court will be interesting to see what the justices have to say, including Pat DeWine, who we should point out once again, (laughs) has declined to recuse himself, even though his father is on the case, which is looking more and more like it's unprecedented everywhere in the nation. We had an op-ed over the weekend talking about just how wrong Pat DeWine is. And it turns out there is a way to oust him. It's to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a precedent from that based right here in Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the first episode of our newly branded podcast. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.